It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, Richard Davidson discusses the neuroscience of well-being. Davidson is one of the world's leading experts on the impact of contemplative practices, such as meditation, on the brain. He is the founder of the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is perhaps best known for his groundbreaking work in studying emotion and the brain. Scientific evidence suggests we can change our brains by transforming our minds and cultivating habits of mind that will improve well-being. These include happiness, resilience, compassion, and emotional balance. Davidson has reached the conclusion that our brain circuitry isn't set in stone. Although our emotions are evolved responses, they are remarkably plastic and can be shaped over time. He says mental training to cultivate compassion and well-being has profound implications for schools, the workplace, and society as a whole. Here's Richard Davidson. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here today. Uh, I appreciate you all coming. And I'd like to share with you a perspective that uh, has come from our work in neuroscience. I'm a neuroscientist by training and a psychologist, and I've been interested in a fundamental question for my entire career, which is, if you look around and reflect on the people that you know, the diversity among people in how they respond to life's slings and arrows is striking. Some people are very resilient in response to adversity, and other people are much more vulnerable. Those variations among people have captivated me, and I've been interested in those questions for my entire career. And I've been studying the brain mechanisms that underlie these variations. And then something happened to me in 1992, which changed the course of my career, and also deeply affected me personally in my personal life. I was invited by His Holiness the Dalai Lama to come meet with him at his residence in Dharamsala, India. And the Dalai Lama was very interested in encouraging serious neuroscientific research on the brains of individuals who spent years cultivating well-being, cultivating qualities of the mind which promote resilience, promote a positive outlook, and he was interested to see if any of our tools of modern neuroscience might reveal something interesting about the brains of these individuals. And he challenged me on that day. Up until that point, much of our work was focused on adversity, on the negative side of life, on how adversity shapes the brain. And he challenged me and he said, you've been using tools of modern neuroscience to study depression and anxiety and fear. Why can't you use those same tools to study kindness and compassion? And it was really a wake-up call for me, and I did not have a very good answer. Uh, I said it was hard, but that was deeply unsatisfying. And I shifted the course of the work that we were doing in our lab, in our center, and began to orient toward this subject of well-being from that day on. 
Now, the title of this talk really conveys the central message, and that is that well-being should be regarded fundamentally as something no different than learning to play golf, learning to play chess, or learning to play the violin. If we practice at it, we will get better. And all of the research that we and other colleagues have done leads us inevitably to this conclusion. And the rest of the talk will really be a footnote to this central statement that well-being is a skill. Now, I'd like to share with you a little bit about why there is such increased receptivity to this work in modern science. But before I do that, let me just share with you an inspirational, oh, that'll come later, an inspirational picture. I'll share with you that soon. But let me talk about four themes in modern science that are enabling this work to go forward in a way that is different than it was even five years ago. The first theme is neuroplasticity. Our brains are built to change in response to experience. And our brains are being shaped wittingly or unwittingly. Most of the time, our brains are being shaped unwittingly by the forces around us. And the invitation in this work is that we can all take responsibility for our brains. And we can shape them in ways that are more beneficial and more positive. The second theme is the equivalent of neuroplasticity in the realm of genomics, and that is the science of epigenetics. Epigenetics is the science of how genes are regulated. And you can think of each gene as having a little volume control that goes from low to high. And the extent to which a gene is expressed, the extent to which that volume control is turned up or turned down, is influenced by our environments. We know from hard-nosed neuroscientific research that the way a mother interacts with her offspring, the extent to which the mother is nurturant and expresses loving qualities to her offspring, will induce epigenetic changes in the offspring. Those epigenetic changes can persist for a long duration of time. They can persist for the entire life of the organism. And they can even, we now know from hard-nosed neuroscientific and biological research, they can be passed down to at least two or three generations. Now, this was regarded as heresy as Lamarckian, as science fiction just a few years ago. And these are now non-controversial, hard-nosed scientific facts. What is less clear is the extent to which our attitudes, our emotions, our demeanor can influence the expression of our genes. But we just published a paper last year showing that one day of intensive meditation practice among experienced meditators actually induced a measurable change in gene expression over the course of eight hours. And so there's a lot more plasticity in these systems than we previously considered. The third theme is a theme that I talk about is bi-directional communication between the brain and the body. The systems in the brain 
that support our well-being are intimately connected to different organ systems in our body and also connected to the immune and the endocrine systems in ways that matter for our health. This is why there's a lot of evidence to suggest that in many chronic illnesses, psychosocial factors, particularly psychosocial stress, can exacerbate the symptoms of those illnesses. Well, if psychosocial stress can actually have an impact on those illnesses, the psychosocial stress is being transduced by the brain, and the brain is then in turn influencing the body in ways that are health relevant. And also, there's the flip side. This connection is bi-directional. If we change our bodies in some way, either through physical exercise or through other body-oriented kinds of practices, that actually feeds back to the brain and can have effects on modulating brain function in ways that are potentially consequential and also can be potentially deleterious. We know that if we're sick, if we have uh, a virus in our body, uh, we uh, experience a kind of fuzziness in our mental quality, which is because of the connection from the body to the brain, which in this case is a deleterious influence, but the influences are constantly going back and forth in each direction. The fourth theme is probably the most controversial among these themes, uh, but one that I think is particularly important and has so many profound implications. And the fourth theme is the theme of innate basic goodness. Innate basic goodness. I would like to invite the suggestion that we all, humans, come into the world with an innate predisposition for basic goodness. And what I mean by that is that if an organism is given a preference for a cooperative and altruistic encounter compared to one that is selfish and aggressive, the preference is clear, the preference is for what is altruistic and more warm-hearted. There is now a plethora of findings in very young infants showing that if you expose infants to scenarios that are appropriate for that age, either videotapes or puppets interacting, where there's a warm-hearted interaction compared to a selfish interaction, the infants show a clear preference for the interaction that is more altruistic, that is reflecting this kind of innate basic goodness. And I should say that recent evidence suggests that this is probably not restricted to humans either. There are a number of non-human primates which also show this same preference. It's not to say that the negative stuff doesn't exist. It's simply to say that if we are given a choice, the choice is clear, the choice is for what is pro-social and warm-hearted. And the reason why this is important is it leads us to conceptualize characteristics like compassion as something very much like language. We are all born with an innate propensity for language. And we know from scientific research that has studied individuals who, for example, are raised in the wild, feral children, who do not have a normal linguistic environment, that this 
propensity is not normally expressed. And in the same way, I think we can think about this for compassion. We are all born with an innate capacity for compassion, but that capacity requires nurturance in the same way that language requires nurturance in order to fully express the potential. And so the kind of simple mental practices that we've been studying are mental practices designed to nurture these innate qualities, strengthen them, consolidate them, uh, so that they are more pronounced but they're not creating these qualities de novo. So this is the inspirational picture. This picture was taken in 2001. It was the first time the Dalai Lama visited our lab uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. He has been there many times and actually will be coming again this April. Um, uh, and he has been an extraordinary uh, inspiration for this work. And one of the things that the Dalai Lama said recently is that his two major commitments for the rest of his life are one is working on behalf of the Tibetan people, and the second is meeting with scientists. May other religious leaders have such commitments. <laughs> okay, so I'd like now to talk explicitly about well-being. Uh, in 2015, uh, in April, uh, the United Nations World Happiness Report was released, which surveys indicators of happiness across the planet. And for the first time, the three economists who've been primarily, primarily responsible for writing this report, um, for reasons that I don't fully understand, decided to ask me as a neuroscientist to collaborate with them uh, on the World Happiness Report. And so for the first time, there is a neuroscience section in the World Happiness Report. And what I'm about to describe to you actually is um, the, the key elements that are contained in this um, 2015 World Happiness Report. And it describes four constituents of well-being that are neuroscientifically validated, if you will, or that have been extensively studied in the neuroscience laboratory. These are, we can think of these as building blocks of well-being, the elements of well-being. And as you'll see, not all of them are, would be completely obvious. They certainly, we don't have questionnaires that measure these. And I would contend you can't measure these simply with a questionnaire. They require other ways of measuring them. So let me tell you what each is. I'll describe a little bit about each. And then I'll give you a feel for how we actually measure this in the laboratory. So the first is resilience. And what I mean by resilience is something very particular. Resilience, in this case, is the rapidity with which we recover from adversity. The rapidity with which we recover from adversity. Some people recover really quickly, and other people recover much more slowly. We can measure this in the brain. And it turns out that these circuits in the brain are plastic. We actually can influence the rapidity with which we recover from adversity. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that those individuals who recover more quickly from adversity, it doesn't mean they don't respond appropriately to adversity. They do. They can show a big response. But then they come back down to baseline very quickly and that is a very adaptive response. 
And I'll share with you in a few minutes how we can actually measure that. The second element of this of a neuroscientifically um, based constituent of well-being in many ways is the flip side of resilience. And in the book that I wrote called The Emotional Life of Your Brain, I talk about these different emotional styles. The second one is called Outlook. And outlook refers to savoring of positive experiences. The extent to which positive emotions last. So we know that when a positive episode occurs, there are some people who experience an appropriate response, but it's very fleeting. And they cannot sustain that positive emotion. And in fact, one of the things that we discovered is that people who suffer from major depression, when they're presented with certain kinds of positive incentives, the brain responds quite normally in that instant. But it cannot sustain that response over time. And individuals who show high levels of well-being are able to sustain that response over time. And we can actually measure that in specific brain systems, and again, these brain systems are plastic, and there are specific mental exercises that we could do that will actually increase a person's capacity for this kind of positive savoring or outlook. The third constituent is attention. Now, this may seem like an odd constituent of well-being. Well, a paper was published a number of years ago in a major scientific journal by some friends of mine uh, at Harvard who used smartphones to sample people out in the real world by texting them. And you can collect data from thousands of people in this way. And this was done in uh, the United States. So this is representative of an, an adult population in the United States. And they essentially asked people three questions. What, the first question is, what are you doing right now? And so people had to just select from a list of activities to indicate what they were doing right now. Second question was, where is your mind right now? Is it focused on what you're doing or is it focused elsewhere? And the third question is, right now, how happy or unhappy are you right at this moment? And here's what they found. The average American adult spends 47% of her or his waking life not paying attention to what they're doing. 47% of the time. Folks, I'm confident that we can do better. There are very simple kinds of exercises that we can do to strengthen our attention muscle. But here's something even more telling. On the third question, when they asked people how happy or unhappy are you, when people reported that their minds were wandering, they reported themselves to be chronically less happy, more dysphoric than when they were paying attention to what they're doing, even if they were paying attention to something boring. Divided attention, distraction, is toxic for well-being. And these data are among a whole corpus of evidence that is robustly showing this. And so mindfulness, paying attention in the present moment, 
is a very important constituent of well-being. And there's now a, a growing body of scientific evidence to indicate that the circuits in the brain that underlie this are indeed plastic and can be shaped through training. The fourth constituent of well-being is generosity. The best way to activate positive emotion circuits in the brain is through generosity. And this is really uh, a kind of exciting neuroscientific finding because um, there are pearls of wisdom in the contemplative traditions. The Dalai Lama frequently talks about this, that the best way for us to be happy is to be generous to others. And in fact, the scientific evidence is in many ways bearing this out and showing that there are systematic changes in the brain that are associated with acts of generosity. So let me, in the next few minutes, just share a little bit about how we can measure some of these things. Um, I may skip around to um, uh, show you the range of this. So the first place we began soon after I met the Dalai Lama because of his uh, strong request that compassion be studied scientifically is to bring these long-term meditation practitioners into our laboratory who have been practicing simple mental exercises designed to strengthen their compassion. So that's what we did. And what we did is something really simple. We had them alternate. That's just what this is indicating between a neutral state and a meditation state. Just a few minutes meditation and then a few minutes a neutral state. They just alternate back and forth to see what changes are occurring in the brain. And here's what one of the practitioners reported that they were doing when they were being measured. He said, what we've tried to do for the sake of the experiment is to generate a state in which love and compassion permeate the whole mind with no other consideration, reasoning, or discursive thoughts. And uh, this is a practice that they do very regularly. And I frequently suggest to people, try this at home, but don't be frustrated if you find that it's difficult to do without reasoning or discursive thoughts intruding. Because after all, that is really the nature of our minds. But one of the virtues of working with these very long-term practitioners, who, by the way, have an average of approximately 34,000 hours of lifetime practice. So you can do the arithmetic at home. 34,000 hours is a lot of practice. And these are clearly not representative of the general public. Um, but we decided to start there, because if we didn't see signals in the brain, that were associated with this in these individuals, we weren't going to see them in much less well-trained individuals. OK, so this is a picture of one of our um, participants. This actually is a very famous uh, Tibetan monk by the name of Mingyur Rinpoche, uh, who has written several popular books on meditation, uh, including a book called The Joy of Living. And here we're recording brain electrical signals from his head. And when we did this on him and a number of other people, we noticed something remarkable. And this is actually a slide from the very first paper that we published on these data that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Very prestigious scientific journal. It was the very first time 
in the august history of this journal that a paper on meditation had ever appeared. And uh, on the left is the neutral state, on the right is the meditation state, and what was really amazing is that you don't need any fancy computer algorithms to see that there's a difference. Uh, and uh, what we see is the presence of these high amplitude gamma oscillations in the brain, which are indicative of plasticity, uh, as well as connectivity among different regions of the brain that are present when they do this. Um, so uh, we also put people in the MRI scanner, and this is a picture of Mathieu Ricard, who is one of the other practitioners that we studied. Mathieu is an amazing guy. Um, we talked a little bit about him in our session last night on empathy and compassion. He's been a Tibetan Buddhist monk since 1967. Uh, he also has a PhD in molecular biology uh, from the Pasteur Institute, where he worked with Francois Jacob, the Nobel laureate. And so he comes to the table with remarkable credentials. And in this picture, um, we took this picture after he had been in the scanner for more than three hours. Most people don't look like this after three hours. <laughs> And we see all kinds of interesting differences in their brains. And I won't go through the details here, but suffice it to say that the region that I'm highlighting in this slide is a really interesting region in the brain called the anterior insula. You know, neuroscientists, all neuroscientists, if you ask any neuroscientist, what's your favorite part of the brain, every, every neuroscientist will have their favorite part of the brain or their top three. This is in my top three. Um, and the reason why it's in my top three is because this is a re there's something unique about this region of the brain. It's the only part of the brain that contains a topographic map of the visceral organs in our body. And so it literally is the place through which a lot of mind-brain-body interaction actually transpires. And compassion is a kind of state that involves the body in a major way and it's not surprising that we see this area of the brain activated when the practitioners are generating compassion. Now, I just want to very briefly suggest that this is, this, all this stuff is not just true in these rarefied long-term practitioners. This is from a study that was published a couple of years ago in individuals who've never done any of these kind of practices before, never meditated a minute in their life. And they were randomly assigned to one of two groups, one group where they learned a simple compassion meditation exercise similar to what I've described, and another group where they were taught cognitive reappraisal training from cognitive therapy, one of the most empirically well-validated strategies for cultivating well-being. And um, uh, I don't have time to go through all of this, but what we find when we do this is that after just two weeks of training for 30 minutes a day, and they practice over the internet, they log on to a protected website and they get guided instructions there. Uh, and I should also tell you that you can download these guided instructions for free from our website and I'll give you our website at the end of this talk. Um, so they practiced for a total of seven hours, 30 minutes a day for two weeks. And we see systematic changes in the brain 
after just seven hours of practice. And we also see changes in behavior. So um, I'm going to skip the elements of compassion training in the interests of time, but just show you that after two weeks of training, if you compare the compassion group to the reappraisal group on economic decision-making measures that reflect pro-social or altruistic behavior, what we see is that after two weeks of training, these are randomly assigned to each group. The participants in the compassion group behave in a more pro-social direction. So <clears throat> I want to just um, tell you a little bit more about resilience, and then uh, I will just share with you a couple of ways in which we've extended this work to children. So I've talked about resilience as the rapidity of recovery from negative events. And you can think of recovery in this way. What I've drawn here is a hypothetical graph that illustrates how one person responds to adversity. And imagine that at the time point three, some stressful event occurs. And this curve is drawn to depict uh, their recovery. And we can compare this person to a second person who reaches the same amplitude of their response, um, but they recover more quickly. We can actually measure this in different neural circuits. And it turns out that simple practices of mindfulness meditation actually change the profile of recovery and enable a person to recover more quickly from a negative or stressful experience. So again, uh, and I, the, this mechanism of resilience is extraordinarily important. And when it's accumulated over time, if you have a difficulty recovering and it, it repeats day in and day out, it will have a toxic effect on certain peripheral biological systems which have consequences for our health. Okay, so uh, I'm going to just um, say a couple of other uh, words about um, how the connections between the mind and the uh, brain and body impact our um, peripheral biology. In one experiment that we did, we randomized employees at a high-tech corporation to a simple program of two months of mindfulness meditation and we had a control group uh, who uh, was going to receive the same instructions at a later point in time. And after the two months, each group was given a flu shot. And we measured the antibody titers mounted in response to the vaccine. This tells us how effective the flu shot actually is. And what we see is that after just two months, going to one class a week for two months, the participants in the meditation group actually show a bigger boost in their immune response to the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is actually more effective for these participants. So this stuff doesn't just affect our subjective experience, but it also impacts our body in very specific ways. And we're extending this work in all kinds of interesting ways to inflammation and to genes that control inflammation and finding that even short amounts of practice can bring benefit in these biological systems. Okay, so I'm going to just skip now to some of the extensions of this work 
to preschool kids, um, we have been interested in seeing whether we can actually teach some of these simple skills to very young children. Because if we can teach them to really young children, we can perhaps help children to begin life on a more positive trajectory. And if that accumulates over time, these can have multiplicative effects. And so we've developed a kindness curriculum for preschool kids that we're implementing in public schools and we're doing randomized controlled trials of this. We just published the first major scientific paper reporting the initial findings from the kindness curriculum. And these are some of the um, activities and topics that are covered in the kindness curriculum. Here, Davidson refers to a slide that shows a list of different skills the curriculum covers. They include working out problems when we have calmed down, gratitude and practicing positive emotions, interconnectedness with all people and the planet, and gratitude and caring for our world. Here's Davidson. And what we have found is that kids actually uh, engage in more pro-social behavior after going through the kindness curriculum. They also show gains on measures that reflect attention and their ability to regulate their own behavior, to delay gratification. And we know that a child's ability to delay his or her gratification at age four and five is a very strong predictor of major life outcomes when they're in their 30s. And these measures of delay of gratification, of attention, and emotion regulation are measures that trump IQ, they trump standardized test scores, and they trump grade point average in predicting things like the likelihood of substance abuse when an individual is, is in, in his or her 30s the engagement in antisocial anti behavior, criminal convictions, and financial success. All of these things have been studied carefully and documented in recent research. And this leads to the suggestion that if we can make a difference early in life, we can have enormous consequences for development later in life. Have you um, thought about or been able to apply this to children who have Asperger's? So the question is about children with Asperger's. We've done a lot of basic research on children with Asperger's and kids with autism. Uh, we have not done any systematic work yet on the application of these methods, but we're doing it now. Uh, we're, we're involved in a study now using some simple breathing practices with kids on the autism spectrum. We're evaluating the impact of our game to cultivate the um, uh, detection of nonverbal cues of emotion and pro-social behavior with kids on the autism spectrum. So this is work that's ongoing. Have you done uh, this work with uh, prison population, those who are incarcerated? Yeah, so in terms of prison population, there is work going on uh, in the US that I'm aware of a little bit, mostly uh, applied work, not really being done in a research context, but there is some work going on on the application of these methods in prisons. Uh, there's a wonderful documentary film that's been made about a um, maximum security uh, prison in the South uh, where they have implemented some of these methods. and. Uh, uh, it's a very dramatic film about some of the changes that have been observed anecdotally. I think that this is a wonderful potential 
application for these methods, but it just hasn't been studied, particularly on hard-nosed measures like recidivism, which, of course, are the kinds of indices we'd like to see. As an adult, like me, um, how do you start the process of meditation? What are the steps to take, and where can one do it? Yeah, wonderful practical questions. Uh, first of all, plasticity never ends until we die, so that's the good news. Um, uh, we all, it's never too late to learn. Uh, there are lots of resources available now on the web. Uh, there is an entity at NIH called the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, uh, and this is part of the National Institutes of Health. If you go onto their website, they have a whole section on meditation and um, you can learn about resources that they recommend. At e virtually every academic medical center in North America, uh, a entity called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction is taught, MBSR. This was originally developed by John Kabat-Zinn of the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and I would highly recommend uh, that program because it's been the most empirically well validated of any kind of uh, meditation out there. If any of you wish to try a compassion-based practice, you can go on to our website, which is investigatinghealthyminds.org. Let's see if I have a slide of it. Um, uh, if we can put up the slides once more, uh, investigatinghealthyminds.org. Uh, you can go to that website and download a compassion, the compassion meditation that we used in our research um, and try it for yourselves and, and see how it works. That the brain is, is plastic, so does this mean that you need to maintain this practice to keep the brain in that format? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. You all know that if you go to a physical trainer and get really buffed up for several weeks, uh, and if you stopped exercising, those changes would quickly dissipate. And it's very similar for this kind of practice. Um, one of the, uh, there was an article that was published in the New Yorker many years ago, and it's something that's really stuck with me. It profiled the lives of three people. One was Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist. The other was Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player. And the third was this guy named Ed Wilson, who's a very famous surgeon at UC San Francisco. And these are three people who are the best in the world at what they do. And it asks, what do these three people have in common? Practice, practice, practice. You have the diagram up there of the monk's brain who had been in the MRI. I, I, did you say that was the left temporal lobe? I missed I didn't. your favorite. Okay. No, it was the, the insula. Oh, oh, I don't know that one. Okay, have you, ever, have you ever had anybody in these meditation practices have an epileptic seizure because there's so much happening in that part of the brain that as they go in there and they do everything, all of a sudden... Zzz. Never, never okay. happened. Um, we've tested by now thousands of people. Uh, it's never happened. Uh, there is an interesting literature that is beginning, to, scientific literature that's beginning to develop on meditation and epilepsy. Not so much that these practices can stimulate epilepsy, but actually can help people with who are prone to epilepsy in normalizing certain abnormal brain rhythms. But that's at a very early stage. Wonderful presentation. I'm, I'm looking you. at, can you comment on technologies which are out there today for biofeedback? 
like interacts on Muse or Emotive, which really help people provide consumers get feedback on the meditation sessions, uh, also brain entertainment like photoic stimulation, binaural beats. Uh, what's your comment on these te techniques? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, you've listed quite a few. Uh, uh, there are more. Uh, and I think that we need to evaluate this. I think that these are strategies which may be helpful. Uh, uh, we don't really know at this point in time. Uh, I think that uh, we can use some of these metrics as ways of providing feedback to people that where the, the, it's not used as neurofeedback or biofeedback itself, but we can monitor our progress, so to speak, in ways that can be reinforcing. It's kind of like a Fitbit for the mind. Uh, and I think that we can develop that, and we're, some of our work is, is oriented toward doing that. Um, so I think there is some potential. Uh, but I don't think anything out there yet has fully realized it in terms of hard-nosed research kind of criteria. Thank you. Has there been any short-term and long-term studies on teens and preteens who play these very violent video games for hours? The answer is yes. And uh, the data are sobering. I often refer to these data very much like the data on the effects of smoking on health. We now, I think, have sufficient data to suggest that violent video games are really toxic. Uh, they produce uh, increases in, uh, in aggressive and antisocial behavior. There is a plethora of evidence for this. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I co-organized a meeting uh, at the White House at the invitation of President Obama's science advisor, and it was a meeting on games, well-being, and neuroscience. And it, we brought 20 of the top executives in the gaming industry. There are about 20 government and foundation officials and about 20 scientists. And one of the goals of this meeting was to have the scientific presentations on the impact of violent video games and have the executives actually have to sit there and listen uh, and hear what the evidence is. And the invitation in this meeting to those gaming executives was that we believe it's actually possible to build a game which kids will want to play that does not involve shooting other people. And I think it is possible and I think we have a moral obligation to try. And that's what has led to our work with games. I think that there is a lot of potential in using games as a medium for pro-social purposes. So thank you all very much. That was Richard Davidson recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 3rd, 2015. His talk included a short video that demonstrates some of the kindness curriculum in preschools that he and his colleagues have developed. If you'd like to watch that video, check out the show notes to this episode. We've included links there. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.